Hey, Rodney. Video games. Video games. <laughs> yes. You're going to bring it out. They mean a out. lot to me. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, they mean a lot to me right now. But they always have. It's a love-hate, positive-negative thing. It's like I love them and I want them all the time. Like right now, I want to play one, but I can't. i got to work. So I would say balance. That's a place I need balance is in video gameage. But sometimes I just need harmony because sometimes I just need a day to play video games and not do anything else. Mm-hmm. Can't do that all the time. Yeah. Video mm-hmm. games. That's good. Hey, I just want to say I'm not a doctor, so I'm not prescribing this. <laughs> uh, I'm not a psychologist. I am not saying. Oh, <laughs> uh, so good. Welcome back to the More Uncommon Podcast. I am your co-host, Keith. I'm the other host, Rodney. That sounded a little bit like a question to me. Just a I little. Was, I was trying the, not to blow your ears out this time. I appreciate it. I felt that that compassion for my eardrums. Uh, you were quite more quiet. And then I heard, like, it was like, damn it, who put a question mark in Ron's teleprompter? <laughs> the... Uh, but the thing I want to talk about here is compassion, and I'm just straight up going to steal the words out of our guest today's mouth. Compassion is witnessing without judgment. I need mm. to say no more, but let's talk about today's conversation with Ben Mathis. Benjamin, Benjamin Mathis. Mathis. Yeah. I mean, where where do we start, right? <laughs> From learning to shut up to managing ego and the dynamics of religious influence in his life and how all of that played out into the creation of some amazing things that he does in the world it's it's just it's a deep conversation like, and it, it's and it's just awesome and the reasons i would say you would listen on top of those are if you want to have better relationships listen there's some great advice great tips tools given if you struggle with being a thing and maybe another thing like say i don't know a christian and a liberal or whatever like if you struggle with the multiple hats that we wear there's some great conversation around being and we talk about we talk a lot about the ego and if you want to maybe take a different perspective about the ego and and one that looks at it more as a healthy thing and how what or it can be healthy that's what i should say can be healthy and how to get there how to get to a healthy place this is for you and um you know after you listen you can go check out more in common ent.com check out all things more in common and go to the page about how we guide because we're building out a consulting practice to bring compassion to corporations to anchor the culture around compassion so we can all build a better world together. After we've differentiated, then we can unify. And so the healthy ego differentiates. The unhealthy ego doesn't have time, it separates. And separation is basically differentiation with judgment. And so when we separate and judge what we have separate from, we other each other, and now the unification is very difficult. But when we differentiate, I am me, you are you, now we can unify. And so the healthy function of the ego is to be the boundary between me and you, 
and even be the boundary between what I objectively consider in my value system as right or wrong. And then we can unify. And that's where grace comes in. That's where all of those things, justice might come in, in the unification process. Today, we're with Benjamin Mathis. Benjamin has been an actor for over 20 years on film, television, and stage. He has worked with artists such as Clint Eastwood, Alan Arkin, Sam Raimi, Bradley Cooper, Andy Garcia, Chris Rock, and Brian Grazer. He has served as an acting coach for Warner Brothers, HBO, and currently for Netflix. Internationally, he runs acting retreats in Ireland, and his career workshops have been held around the world. He is a certified associate teacher at Fitzmorris Voicework and has served as vocal and dialect coach for major motion pictures, network television, and theaters around the country. He is the author of four books, Thought Lozenges for Artists, A Daringly Optimistic, Open Where You Want, Look Into the Creative Process, Crash, Unstuck Yourself, a guided journal designed to directly combat the blocks holding us from our creative potential. You, the career, offers a holistic approach to life and art that allows you to have the career you want without losing the person you are. And his most recent book, Short Paragraphs on Listening, draws from his experience free listening on the streets and is an open where you want book about the power of listening. And we may have heard that he's got some more books on the way. Yeah. And lastly, because he certainly doesn't do enough, tying right into that, he is the founder of Urban Confessional. It is a free listening movement. It was started as a way to challenge conventional actor training. And Urban Confessional is a community of artists who believe people should be heard. They stand on street corners all over the world with signs that say free listening. And you can imagine what happens next. And their work has been featured in magazines, academic publications, and blogs, and on radio and television. And now is in over 70 countries with thousands of volunteers. Benjamin, welcome to the show, my man. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Thanks for being here. So first question of our show is all about something you answered in the lead up about conversation tip. And you, you gave us two. So I'm going to, I'm going to anchor on one because it's salacious. I'm just kidding. It's really not, but you said, shut up. So (laughs) the, the, we're going to start there and we're going to get to the other one because the other one is just absolute brilliant that everybody needs to hear, but shut up. How have you learned to shut up in a conversation? So I think this, this thing about shutting up comes most when, okay, so have you ever been talking to a girlfriend who's complaining about her boyfriend <laughs> and she's telling you about an argument that they had or an argument, something that happened. And you're just going, dude, you're, you're listening from the guy's point of view. And you're like, dude, sometimes you just need to shut up and don't talk. Don't say anything <laughs> at all. Like that's like the best marriage advice I've ever, ever, ever <laughs> tried to utilize. Like sometimes nothing beats like a well-timed shutting up and just not moving forward. <laughs> it's just a like well-timed, well-timed shutting, up. shutting up. Like, dude, if you Why hadn't you said just something, have a nice cold glass of shut up, so shut, shut up. the hell up. Is what you need to do. Um, I, I think, I think it, you know, it's kind of a glib way to say to me, the best way to navigate through a very difficult conversation is to keep that ego in check, to keep that inclination to fix and to be right and to debate and to fight in check. 
I guess anytime we start to fight, we're only ever going to get our, our 50% of the way there anyway. And if we prioritize relationship over being right, then the next step is just shut up. Then shut up for a second. And implicit in shutting up is listening to the other, cooling down my need to dominate and cooling down my need to be right and fix the other person or argue with the other person. I've just never gotten in trouble by not speaking. That doesn't mean you shouldn't speak up. So obviously there's some nuance here, but uh, when I get heated, when I get in a difficult conversation or disagreement, I've never done more damage by being quiet than by speaking. Before we get to the second part of it, because I want to definitely get there. So I watched something with my daughter. There's this little show called Bluey on Disney Plus, little like six minute, five minute episodes. This is Australian cartoon about this dog family. Super cute. And there's this episode with the two siblings where the younger sibling was like, our grandparents can floss, you know, that dance the kids do from Fortnite. They floss with their arms. And the older siblings, like grandparents do not floss. And then they FaceTimed them and the grandparents did not floss. And the little one's heart was broken. And then the older one was like, see, I told you they don't floss. And then said, now do you want to play with me? And the little one said, no, I don't want to play with you. I'm mad. And she's like, but I was right. Like, why are you mad at me? I'm right. And went to the parents and the parents said, well, you can, do you want to be right? Or do you want Ringo to play with you? And so what Bluey then did was called the grandparents on his own and said, let me teach you how to floss. And then called back with the sibling and was like, check this out. They can floss. So it was like a step beyond. Um, it's like, we can all be right. We can all win. We can all win if we decide. Because I always heard it as like, but are you punishing me for being smarter like, or for being right? That's how I heard it in a, in a past version of myself. And I think seeing this then would have been helpful for me. It was helpful for me now to have an example to give to people. But I, I love this. Prioritize the relationship over being right. It doesn't mean that you're putting yourself aside. It's like you bring them up, like lift them up, help them be right. Yeah, I don't know that we can ever convince anyone to to change or be better any any more than anyone can convince us to change or be better. You know, data, the idea of being right in some ways implies a certain amount of data. And, you know, I, I just don't think data is as good as changing people as story is or as otherwise I'll draw from some of the great teachers um, who who would speak in parable. I mean, Jesus wasn't giving data to people, <laughs> you know, maybe things would be easier had he done that. <laughs> maybe he'd be like, look, here's 25% of you, 30% of you. But, um, well, to use Jesus, I mean, the Pharisees used data. Th they would he use data. Literally, <laughs> he, 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 he figuratively smacked them in the face and said, your data is not the thing you're, you're actually focusing on the data and you're missing the people in front of you that need your help. Right. And I mean, it's and we're going to talk about this in a minute but it does speak directly to ego. Like when you're attempting to be right, is your goal to be right? Or is your goal to help the other person see what you see, right? And not necessarily to persuade them or sway them in one direction or the other, just so they have the perspective that you're trying to share. Because really all you're trying to do is be heard and listened to. And whether it's political or whether it's religious or anything, all we all ever want to do is be heard. So are you just trying to be right for yourself? Because if the other person doesn't see you as right, like, did you win? 
Like what, what did you gain out of that by throwing out a whole bunch of information? Right. We did a, we did a political season, Ben, where we, one of the, the one question we asked everybody is like, what's a fact? And the kind of what we got out of it is that the fa- facts don't matter and the data doesn't matter. Cause that's not really what we're arguing. That's not really what the, what's at stake in most conversations. And to your point, like the data, very little to do with what's actually going on. In my industry, you know, acting and storytelling and stuff. Um, and, and the author, Tim O'Brien articulates this really well in his book, the things they carried that fact and truth are totally different things. And they don't have to be the same. In other words, you could probably read To Kill a Mockingbird and get more truth than any set of facts could ever reveal. And I think we, maybe because we love sound bites and we love headlines and we are a society that's driven by ego and, and team playing and separation and right and wrong and dualistic thinking, that we think facts are the path towards peace and harmony and understanding. But if, if that were the case, then education would be the ultimate signifier of your ability to bring peace into the world. And if you've ever met someone with a PhD, that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, you can be the most educated one in the room. PhDs, but you are right. <laughs> I mean, you it's, you know, it's not necessarily the case. <laughs> you yeah. know, I bristle. I bristle when people that in the work world, in the corporate world where I'm at, say, I only read uh, nonfiction. Some of the you so succinctly put something that I felt and could not put words to. I've gotten more truth out of the sci-fi and fantasy and the other books that I've read than I've gotten out of any scholarly document. So I, yeah, I love that. So going back to that first question about shutting up as we so eloquently threw out at least six dozen times in the first five minutes of this conversation. <laughs> Shut up, everybody. But, <laughs> Is that the name of the episode? <laughs> That's the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, a thing that you ask at the end of every conversation. So that ties directly into this because I think I'll add some commentary. There is always that, when am I going to be able to say what I want to say? Right. And people hold on to that until the end. And you, instead of interjecting at pauses, so the other person gets frustrated and says, I wasn't done yet. You always say is, well, you may not always say it, but is there anything else you would like to say? How did you come about that modicum of brilliance? Well, it's not mine. It was given to me, actually. So when I started Urban Confessional back in 2012 or so, I really had no idea what I was doing at all. I still don't really, but I didn't have any idea. And someone said, you need to meet with a woman named Kay Lindahl. And maybe she's someone you should meet if you haven't. Kay Lindahl. Kay lives in Long Beach, California. And I consider her, and I've told her this, so I don't mind. I consider her an elder in the listening community, if you will. And so she she was kind enough to meet with me. And we're, we're very close. And I say very close. We don't see each other often, but when we do, it's wonderful, you know. And so I go down to meet with her, and she's... She's so loving. She didn't judge me at all. But, you know, I look back and I'm from the South originally. We say, bless, bless your heart. You know, that's kind of how bless she was. Bless, bless your, your little heart. heart. Bless your heart. Bless your little mind. <laughs> bless your little heart. That's kind of how she wasn't patronizing. But it was she's looking at me like, I love your energy. I love your energy. Now shut up and go listen to people. <laughs> right? So she is the one who taught me. 
that when things are difficult and things are heated and you're in disagreement, to let the other person finish. And after they have finished, ask them, is there anything else you'd like to say? And what that does for them is it lets them kind of go into what's bothering them the most. And the thing that they have left unspoken will probably reveal itself then. Now, that does two things. Strategically, it does two things. It allows the other person the benefit of feeling fully heard. And then it allows you the benefit of fully hearing the person. Because as we all know, what we what I might be saying up front may not have anything to do with my problem. That may not be it at all. Really, more deeply, I've been hurt, I've been wounded or something. Yeah. And so by giving them the opportunity to reflect and go, actually, there is one more thing I want to say, gives you the opportunity to respond more accurately and lets them know that they've been heard. And, oh, man, I cannot tell you the power of that single adjustment. Shifted, It's shifted so many things. When it's hard and when you're in that activated state, when it's heated, this is where I often struggle, especially with my wife. Let's say I find the strength to say, what else do you need? What else do you want? Versus what else do you need? What else do you want? Like the softening of the lines and like the care around it. Cause I'm, I'm activated. I'm pissed. You're not hearing me. How am I, I gotta hear, do you have any tips for that moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or do you just ask the question regardless? No, let's, let's talk about that activated state because in that activated state, the autonomic nervous system shooting through the roof. And likely both parties have gone into fight, flight, or freeze. They're likely gone into their primal response to the conflict. And if your primal response to conflict is to fight, then you're going to throw the question, what else do you need? Basically, what else do you need, you idiot? You know, that's basically what you're saying. And, and so one of the things that we have to practice, first off, we've got to be aware. We have to recognize. Most people, I'm not sure, recognize the biology that's happening in those moments. The nervous system is through the roof. Um, we're, we're, we've accessed that primal response and we're in fight, flight, or freeze. And so one thing we've got to do, and one thing that I work hard to teach and work with people on is I've got to deactivate that nervous system, at least be able to do it or try to do it. And so we do that by orienting outside of the body, by seeing something, by hearing something, by touching, remaining present to where I am currently, and then by stabilizing within the body. And that begins to tell the body that you're safe. You're not actually under attack here. If you can do that for just a breath, I mean, if you can do it for just a pause, that's that's pretty good. And then ask, is there anything else you need to say? What we're doing at that moment is prioritizing my concern and love for the other person over my self-protective, conflict-driven, reactive body. And it's easier said than done, and that can be practiced. But in those moments, there's a lot going on. As we know, there's a lot going on in the body that make it very difficult to listen or care about the other person. And so with practice, though, it becomes much easier. Just want to call this out because it is actually a tip that we deliver in our sessions. I like the way you frame it because it's a little more practical, but the, um, the three things. So we actually got this tip from a guest two years ago, a psychologist, and it Say three things you see, touch three things you or touch three things near you, say three things you hear, and then ultimately label how you feel, which is far more a good therapeutic response because it's three things each. And so it's kind of like an awkward thing when you're in a conversation and you're doing these things. So I like the way you frame that of 
touch something. I know, you just go like, right into it. <laughs> yeah, just like, you're just like, what are you doing? What right are you doing? Now? You're like, ignoring me right now. Your face. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds it? like it's the same, you know, it's the same methodology yeah. that we're, we're it, it's, it is. It's all it's about that yeah. external yeah. logical body engagement. Yeah. And that's actually what I was going to comment on. Uh, you said you're taking care of them first. And actually, I'm kind of looking at that as you're, you are taking care of yourself. You are reassuring yourself that you are safe. And then you can engage safely, like in a, in a loving manner. Because when you, when you are attacked, it is, it is physiologically impossible to respond with love. Like, you're hitting me with a hammer. I don't love this. I cannot respond with love to that. You're right. It's, it is the airplane adjustment. You know, put the mask on yourself first so that I can take care of you. So that's right. Yes, I, I guess so. Yes, I, I have to know that I'm safe in this moment. My biology does. My my mind is going, I know I'm not in danger. <laughs> like, I know you're not going to hurt me, but my body's responding as if you are. And so it is, um, it is yeah. so remarkable. That's so good. How unevolved we are and how evolved we are at the same time. Like, we can literally create a fight, flight, or freeze response by thinking about something. Like, the just the fact that our prefrontal cortex can just activate our amygdala and go, Boom, you're in it. Go figure we, it out. We are, often, I, we are often captive to the two most unique things to humans, great memory and amazing imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I uh, heard, a, so I was, I've been doing a lot of research on compassion lately, and I heard this great insight about self-compassion. One of the things that you can do like in that moment, and it speaks to the external, is just put your hands on your chest because it gives you a say it, it emulates that physiological need for um, safety. Like when you're a child and you're close to your, to your parents, you're being held. Maslow's we need hugs. And, we need so many yeah, hugs a so day. It, it just, it gives you kind of that sense of, of safety. And when you try it for anybody in the audience, it's actually funny how it feels like it feels like, Oh, I get it. And so it's one of those. You talked about keeping your ego in check when we talk about shutting up. For you, what has been that journey to understanding your own ego in order to keep it in check? Well, I, I, that's, that word you use, journey, is so good because it's still there. I, I would say for sure it's still there. So my understanding around the ego comes from two places mostly, most from contemplative religious practices and um, deep artistic practices, both of which seeking out what is the purpose of this ego? How do we navigate through this ego? How do we use this ego? What's what's going on? And in the artistic practices, um, I spend a lot of time helping people develop a healthy sense of ego, thereby differentiating themselves from other in a healthy way. So many of us struggle with boundaries, of course. And so the undifferentiated ego cannot tell what is you and what is me. And so we get confused. The healthy version of the ego knows where I end and you begin. And so in the theater, especially in acting, but in life, certainly, that healthy ego is the beginning of all intimacy. Because I know where I end and I know where you begin. And now together we can choose to cross that boundary. And so in the pursuit of intimacy in the arts and in life the call of the ego comes into play and how can it remain healthy in that, that aspect? So I know who I am and, and I allow you to know who you are. And that's a listening element as well. 
in the practice of deep listening, the ego is differentiating me from you. And therein, I can keep my nervous system balanced because I know what's happening in you is happening in you and not happening in me. And so there's many, many exercises we can do to help differentiate the body so the ego knows that this is a you issue and this is a me issue. And then in contemplative religious practices, it's all about it's all about that, that exploration of the ego as one of the things that keep us separate from union with God. And so in pursuit of that ego function, which is the same across the board as the artistic ego function, it is you know, often done through mindful practices of listening and meditation and contemplative prayer. It's done through adhering to certain wisdoms, of course, and and practicing those things in relationship with others. I, I think that's probably where ego is tested the most in relationship, but it's also where ego does the most benefit in relationship. So um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I, it seems like it comes up for me almost every day, ego and conversations around ego. It's a, it's, I love it. It's great to talk about. Well, let you answer that question, Keith, if it answered your question. So yes and no. I guess it did, but when did the journey begin for you? Oh, really oh yeah. Big, oh, great. Okay, yeah. yes. Even better. Okay, yeah. good. Okay, good. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Nothing like a divorce <laughs> to get you to look at your own shit. <laughs> so 2011, I got divorced and I was like at rock bottom, which I guess even being at rock bottom after a divorce is a sign of like healthy ego in a way because it had been destroyed. And everything I thought I knew, everything I thought I was becoming, everything I thought I wanted to be, I had let myself down. I'd let others down, I thought. And it was just... It, the whole thing collapsed for me in a real way and, you know, in a, in a dark night of the soul kind of way it did because the divorce was very much, well, I mean, it's reductive to say, but I felt as if it was entirely my fault. And so, you know, taking on that and hurting someone deeply that you do love is almost worse than being hurt by someone. I mean, my God, I, I would rather receive the injury than deliver the injury. And so, I guess I was surrounded by enough love and support that I was able to process that in a healthy way. It led to free listening and it led to that practice. And so I would say that really, truly, my battle with my ego and my understanding with it really, really began to develop on the streets in North Hollywood holding a free listening sign. And I, I really mean that. And, and being reduced through divorce to nothing. And to realizing that maybe I wasn't what I had hoped to be. You, you come face to face with your shadow and you realize you're more complete than anyone ever told you you were. And you don't have to be just a light or whatever it is. And, and so I was unintegrated. I became more integrated. And the practice of free listening put it literally on the streets and literally tested it. Can I sit and be with somebody and just be with them? And not need to have my ego fix them or, or, or better myself or be above them or be below them, but simply to be with them. And, and so free listening is free withing, really. And that was certainly the beginning of my exploration around ego. I had a question set and I, I still want to ask it, but you said that the being able to, to see your shadow, see the darkness in you and realize that you're complete. That is, that's, I, I feel that, like, I, that has been a very, very recent part of my journey. And uh, a very recent meditative practice of mine is to actually go into the dark side of myself and just say, I love you. Like, not judge it, just say, I love you. And it's terrifying 
kind of tying it back to what we were talking about earlier, like even just the arms on the chest, like that's kind of, that's it, what it feels like to me is like me saying, I love me, like I t- telling myself, I love me and it does feel safe. And I think part of this, that idea of like going into your own head and saying you're safe is realizing, I think it's what people say when they say like what you need, the medicine that you need is in you, or like you are already who you need to be is like, you can be the provider of the hugs that you need every day or the affirmation that you need every day. The you're already in there, the dark part, the light part, all of it. And I just, I wanted to call that out for, I don't know who needs to hear it. Uh, I needed to hear it at some point. I hearing it again, just hearing you say that was very helpful for me. So appreciate it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I would yes. And that I, I would say that everything we need, we already have, and we must be mirrored back who we are or else we'll never know. And, and I think that's also a function of the ego. I, I, I'm not sure that we can know completely who we are unless we have positive mirrors around us. And those mirrors might be loved ones, people, the mirror could be the, the flower that is looking back at you and offering all of itself on your behalf and or the trees or, or something. But what is it that is mirroring back the goodness that is within you? And I might say that people who suffer from a deep sense of isolation and depression really are suffering from a lack of clear mirrors, mirroring their beauty back to them. And there's no way to know then that what we are is good unless someone or something can reflect it back to us. And so I, I deeply believe what you've said, that everything that we need is in us, as namaste would, the word namaste would imply, the divine in me bows to the divine in you. And so the divine is in us, and so all we need is there, and yet we don't always realize it unless it is reflected back. And that's a, what a beautiful communion. That, that teaches then that we do desperately need each other to know who we are. We need each other to know who we are. Through you, I see me. And right. Yeah, the... Yeah. On ego, you had the uh, tail end, you mentioned the protective part or like a, even intimating a positive side of the ego. And I think ego has suffered what Western media does and it's just negative. Get rid of it. But that's my personal opinion. What, like, what's your take on like, what does it mean for you to say, keep ego in check? Does that mean silence it, get rid of it? Or is it working with it and listening to it? Like, what is that? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because ego has such a bad rap. <laughs> ego has such a bad rap. It does the yeah. benefit of ego is what you said. Benefit yeah. of ego, yeah. And and to be really clear, you know, I'm I'm not a psychologist. I'm I'm certainly I'm not as well steeped as many in Freudian psychology who could speak about the ego and the soup, the id, and all these things. So I, I'm really just coming at this from a very practical point of view that is rooted in my practices as an artist and a listener and a people person. I've spent years studying body work and breath work, and that was how I made a living for a long time. So that's where my <laughs> my understanding of it's coming from. So to be very clear, that informs my biases and also the limitations of my understanding. But what I believe to be true, at least on some level, is that the ego is not the problem, but our relationship to ego can be the problem. The relationship, the tendency to separate from each other, which is a function of the ego, to separate, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think we get in a lot of trouble. So very famously, okay, this is this is actually a great example of an unhealthy ego. In 2017, in the Charlottesville riots or marches, I guess, uh, the white supremacy marches. Depending on who you talk to. Depending yeah. on who you talk to. <laughs> yeah, there, and there's ego right there. 
the you know the president at the time said there were good people on both sides. Okay, and that was a very famous line. It probably go down in history, uh, and that is a projection of ego that there are good people on both sides. And the problem with the statement, truly, is not that empirically, spiritually, there aren't good people on both sides. Everyone is a child of God and all of these things, but that the inability to differentiate first before we unify is a misfunction of our ego. And so had had someone said that there is good people uh, or there are people doing good and people doing bad, okay, that was evident to most common sense people, that there are people here doing good and people doing bad based in how we would consider good and bad, whether that's violence or inciting violence or using certain language, we would categorize, our grandmothers would categorize that as not good. So we can differentiate first. After we've differentiated, then we can unify. And so the healthy ego differentiates. The unhealthy ego doesn't have time, it separates. And separation is basically differentiation with judgment. And so when we separate and judge what we have separate from, we other each other, and now the unification is very difficult. But when we differentiate, I am me, you are you, now we can unify. And so the healthy function of the ego is to be the boundary between me and you, and even be the boundary between what I objectively consider in my value system as right or wrong. And then we can unify. And that's where grace comes in. That's where all of those things, justice might come in in the unification process. You know, I love the way you frame that is, is ego is a dividing line to bring us together, right? Like it's, it, it serves both functions because at the end of the day, you just, in everything you said, as far as separating the self from the other, when we get so fired up politically, we'll talk about politics just as a, as a concept, because someone else thinks differently, we internalize that as some sort of either attack on self or some sort of reflection of self, something, whether it insights shame, guilt, some negative emotion, all because you have an idea. And now I've conflated your idea with my identity and I can't reconcile the two. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's the core of it. And I think, I think it's both, we can bypass our differences, which of course, like you're saying is problematic. We're saying, well, we're all the same and that's problematic, or we can over-identify with our differences and that becomes problematic. That's, and, and so one must lead to the other. If we're going to find the kind of, I think, what is the truth is that one does lead to the other. But yeah, if we ignore the difference, if we don't honor the difference, then um, we are ignoring the healthy ego in each of us that knows that I'm different. And um, that's how I see it. I, I, I'm sure there are lots of people more well-versed around ego than I would be who might get even add more nuance to it. But it seems, at least from a layman's point of view, that that um, is a beneficial understanding. To make this really, like, use an example for the audience, um, using black and white relations in the U.S. Um, and a, a thing that Keith, Keith, we've talked about in a recent episode is the whole, the statement, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. All right. We're going to take a pause right there. This conversation is going to get a little heavier as we go into part two. So we'll give a little bit of a break. Always want to remind you, hey, if you're really enjoying this conversation, give us a like, give us a share, leave us a comment, you know, and, and let us know how we're doing. 
And if you really like this conversation, it really reminds me of one that we had with Dr. Graham Bodie. Um, so we'll put that in the notes so you can go back and check that out while we wait for part two in a couple days. We'll see you then. Thank you.